Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Yale Center for Bioethics. How can I help you? I am Dave. 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 Model 30XX Omega. Possible subroutine damaged during time travel. My name is Dave. Nice to meet you, Dave. I am Dave. You said that. Uh, Who are you here to see? I am here to see Wendell Wallach. I am his cousin. I am visiting from Akron prior to the destruction of that place in 2031. I am Cousin Dave. Okay. Is Wendell expecting you? No. My visit is a curveball of suddenness. You mean a surprise? Yes, if you say so. I see. Um, Cousin Dave, do you mind if I ask you kind of a personal question? No, as long as it does not relate to my Carrizo 17 synthetic mycoplasm battery chip. That information is restricted. Cousin Dave, are you a lethal autonomous robot sent from the future to kill Wendell Wallach before he warns mankind of the dangers you represent, or...? No. Yes. Yes, no. Okay. Just a second. Wendell, we have another one out here. Would you mind um, just sitting over there next to the three other uh, gentlemen who look exactly like you and will be with you as soon as possible? Yes. Would it be possible to connect a hose containing distilled human life force to my forehead? I have had a long journey, and I am parched. Yeah, we'll get right on that. In the meantime, help yourself to a butterscotch candy from the bowl. I am Dave. Yes, you are so Dave. I cannot work under these conditions, since when is it my job to make the Terminators comfortable? It's not like I wrote the book that upset them. And now the inventor of nano-wipes, Colin McEnroe. I am holding the book that upsets them. It's uh, A Dangerous Master by Wendell Wallach. And Wendell Wallach is uh, in our studio hiding out from robots from the future who are looking for him everywhere uh, because of what he has said. Uh, Wendell Wallach is a frequent guest on our show, uh, but we've been looking forward in particular particular to this day. Uh, He's a scholar at Yale's Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and uh, the co-author with Colin Allen of Moral Machines, Teaching Robots Right from Wrong, and the author of this new book, A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from slipping beyond our control. So, um, first of all, Wendell, we, we have been looking for, I mean, we have you on all the time, but we've been waiting for the new book. The new book is here. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Colin. So, you know, in a nutshell, what we're looking at in this book is the question of as technology speeds up, as as technology changes and becomes more complex, are we smart enough to keep up with it, stay ahead of it, manage it so that it helps us more than it hurts us? That is the question. So and I think within that question, there are a whole bunch of other questions. And I, to me, the first one is, are we paying any attention at all? I mean, you're paying attention. There's a, a cadre of people like you who are paying attention, but I'm not sure that the average person does. And so I want to... Uh, I'll pick one thing from the book, and maybe we can use it as a kind of a case study for some of the questions that you're asking within this book. And I'm going to put pick just because I hadn't heard about it for a while until I was reading your book, and I thought, wow, I haven't heard about gray goo for a while. You know, gray goo used to be this thing we were all supposed to be really afraid of, and then nobody talks about it anymore. So first of all, explain what that is. 
Well, gray goo is a fanciful notion that somewhere in the future we'll have these tiny molecular nanomachines, too, too small to even be seen with most of our microscopes. And they will be self-reproducing, and in the act of just reproducing ourselves, they'll eat up all the carbon-based matter on the planet until there's nothing left but a thick sludge of gray goo. So to me, there's a, a whole series of kind of bellwether questions that, that, we, that could apply to so many of the, the cases that you bring up in the book. But we can do it just as easily with gray goo because it's fun to say gray goo. Um, so the first one is, well, you used the word fanciful. Uh, which was sort of a classifier. Mm-hmm. But um, there are people, there used to be people on the web. Five years ago, I could easily find a you know, currently written article on some site saying, this isn't fanciful at all. This is something we really ought to be worried about. Uh, and nobody's worrying about it. And people are just developing the nanotechnology. And who knows what the hell is going to happen. So, I mean, first of all, should we be paying any attention to a problem like this one? That's a question we, sh- we should ask about all these things, right? Well, it's always nice to think about these, you know, far-fetched science fiction ideas that perhaps this will pass some scientific thresholds that we should take them a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. But for the time de- being, Grey Goo is science fiction. It's been a poster child for maybe, oh, 15 years now, ever since Bill Joy produced this very famous essay about whether the future needed us 15 years ago. So it's been a poster child for existential risks, things that Mm. could go wrong that could actually eliminate us from this planet. But it's still tremendously fanciful, very much science fiction. And yet, first incremental steps are being made to create nanomachines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and you, you write quite a lot about that in the book. And then the next question would be, all right, so in a way, we can sort of almost throw Gray goo out on that. But let's say that we decided to go for, further along the decision tree about this. The next question is, are we capable of regulating our behavior, our collective behavior around anything? But when, once again, we can use gray goo. In other words, there's scientists all over the world who are working on nanotechnology. There's companies that have R&D money tied up in it. Let's say that Let's say some panel somewhere said, you know what, this is, you know, Joy was not, he's not barking up the wrong tree here. There really is a substantial question here, and, and there's a reason to tap, if not hit, the brakes. Are there any brakes? Do the brakes exist? Could you get people to stop um, doing what they're doing and take a look? I mean, that's one of the fundamental questions of this book about a lot of different things. About a lot of different things. And you've always got the problem of bad actors, even if you get all the good actors to agree what should be done. But getting all the good actors to agree is not all that easy, easy either. In addition to Grey Goo, the other poster child for existential risks has been the Terminator scenarios. Mm-hmm. And some people may have noticed that over the last six months, there actually have been a lot of calls from leading scientists suggesting, well, maybe even though those are very far off, we should start thinking about whether the artificial forms of intelligence we're creating will be controllable, safe, demonstrably beneficial. So that's at least some evidence that um, people are beginning to look into the future and beginning to look at what kinds of research or measures can be taken now to make sure that we get the benefits of new technologies without having to witness some of the more horrendous possibilities. 
And it seems to me that one of the other, by the way, as we go along here, if you have questions, we have a bioethicist and futurist uh, here with us. Uh, if you're worried about a specific thing, I can't say that he can be dispositive about it, but he's probably the best bet you've got right now. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I'm going to do my best to bring up all the things you're worried about, but uh, if I miss any, you can call in. You can also tweet us, Tweetmaster uh, Greg Hill, although he does turn out to be a lethal robot from the future, is tweeting right now at WNPR, Colin. Let's, so to me, one of the other questions in your book, did you have something you wanted to say? Well, let me just interject yeah. one thing yeah. here, because though the book focuses on what can go wrong and whether we can manage it, the book was also written to be an introduction to the vast array of emerging technologies for people who don't really understand what words like nanotechnology or geoengineering or these other fields we've been talking about are. So it's both an introduction, an introduction about some of the policy issues and other things that go on. But, yes, it does focus on what can go wrong to make sure that we can maximize the benefits and minimize the risks. Right, and, and what can go right. So let's, to me, one of the other questions in the book is um, – is personal autonomy. To what degree are people willing to give up their personal autonomy uh, in order to reap some of these rewards um, and, and, and to, in order to behave intelligently in the face of these new changes? So let's pick something far less ex- exotic than Greg Goo. Let's pick self-driving cars, all right? So you deal mm-hmm. in the book with self-driving cars. Self-driving cars, I mean, the way that that sounds, they're not quite here, but they're sort of here, right? I mean, there sort are, of. I think you say X thousand miles have been driven uh, in. Oh, we're into the millions by now. The millions now, okay, so uh, by these Google cars. But they're not really self-driving cars in the sense you get in the car and say, I want to go to Wendell's house, and then you sit back and you do nothing. Mm-hmm. Explain, the, explain, explain what, they, what they will do and what they won't do. Well, you could get in and you could say, let's go to Wendell's house, and they would do it, but you better – Keep your eyes sharply upon the road and the wheel just in case they do something or you encounter a situation that they don't know how to handle. Yeah. So that's that's the near term of this, though there are a number of manufacturers who will be releasing at least some aspects of autonomy. So the ability to drive on a highway without you being asked to be responsive all the time looks like that's coming in the next year or two. So the, the, the ideal scenario here is – well, first of all, let's just stop on that for a second. So one good thing about this, one thing that to me is promising about this is that the truth is people are not sufficiently attentive as they drive right now. And in fact, we've introduced this morass of distractions. I mean there always were people changing the stations on their radio and drinking coffee and putting on their makeup and stuff like that. But now we have this morass of other distractions with cell phones and texting and stuff like that. And, and, and in a way – the self-driving car sort of, to me, is kind of appealing in the sense that it would tell you could kind of be distracted some of the time, and it would tell you, wait a minute, you got to start paying attention. Right. And uh, it's important to note that at least some of the statistics seem to suggest that 80% of all accidents happen because of human error, mm-hmm. inattention, falling asleep, all kinds of, of different things that we do. So ostensibly, self-driving cars would lower accident rates and save a good number of lives. And, of course, that then takes us to the other extreme. If you can really make this technology work, should we let humans drive anymore? Well, yeah. And so that's when we get to the question of autonomy. And it seems to me – you know, using Southern California as a fabulous laboratory of this, that you, that you, you could – I don't know how far we are from this point, but at some point there will be a moment where traffic engineers and Google and whoever else the stakeholders and players are going to say, look – 
you know, to get on this particular highway, you've got to punch the button that says that your car is, you know, is now in a self-driving mode. And then it will be regulated, not by you at all, but by the car and whatever kind of, you know, master control tower we have. And the great news is you will never be in a traffic jam again. But the, the bad news is you'll never go 70 again either. We, we, we can figure out how to make the traffic flow perfectly at 42 or whatever. And you know, we know where the choke points are, where we need to slow down. And, and you'll just get where you need to go. And you can sit there texting whatever it is you like to do. But you're not going to be in control of your car. And you're not going to necessarily go as fast as you want to go. Even if it looks like there's open road ahead of you, our algorithms will have figured out how fast you need to go to avoid being a problem. And you want wonder whether people will accept that, particularly Americans. Well, it's going to be good for the people who want to text message while they're driving, right. but it's going to be bad for those of those who not only want control of their vehicles, but use their vehicles as a way of getting aggression out and all kinds of other you know, emotions that we express behind the wheel. Yeah, and it seems to me it could also lead to some two-tier systems. So let's say that we have this sort of beautiful, computerized, algorithmically controlled highway system. But you can only go on it if you've got a car that's equipped with that kind of technology, right? It don't, it won't, if you're on there with your, with your clunker, you know, um, it's not going to work. So you can see, may conceivably have systems that – road systems that you can only use if you can afford to buy the car that works on them. Exactly, and that's coming because mm-hmm. it's not just a question of a self-driving car, but – if they can put sensors in the road system, if they can ensure that the cars talk with each other, then they can control or manage the flow of traffic much better. So those are even more advanced than what you're seeing so far, which is cars that tend to function autonomously just based on the software that's within that car. So everything, and this is a word you use a lot in the book, is a trade-off. Well, I mean, not everything's a trade-off. A lot of things are trade-offs. So a lot of he, things are trade-offs. So, yeah. yeah. So here we could talk about um, a system where maybe there just really wouldn't be traffic jams anymore, and maybe there wouldn't be accidents, those kinds of accidents that are the 80 percent that are the result of human error, that those wouldn't happen anymore. You know, there'd be like a real a lot of upsides here, and you, you could use your time in your car more productively and still get where you want to go. Um, but there's some kind of trade-off, and, and, and the trade-off is, in this case, a little bit less palpable. I mean, the trade-off has something to do with you being in charge. And then maybe there also is this trade-off that that roads, which we let everybody use, <laughs> now we might stop doing, right? Exactly. You know, and it's, it's these trade-offs and whether our societal goals are such that we're willing to make those trade-offs that are going to be debated out over the next 10 and 20 years. So let's look at another trade-off, nuclear energy. Now, I have to say, and this was in the intro, which I don't think you heard uh, before the news, but, you know, <laughs> like most people, I stopped paying attention to Fukushima, like, you know, when Wolf Blitzer stopped talking about it. Right. And so until I, when I read your book, one of the things you talk about is that after all the cameras went away, it turned out there were fuel rods sitting where they were supposed to be sitting, and which were very dangerous and which couldn't be easily extracted because the equipment that existed to extract them safely was also damaged. And so there was this very dangerous situation. And and the worst case scenario, which I'll let you describe, was a really, really worst case scenario. Yeah. And these, uh, these fuel rods were actually sitting where they were supposed to be sitting, 300 feet off the ground in a, in a decommissioned Unit 4. It wasn't decommissioned, but it just wasn't functioning at the time of the mm-hmm. earthquake. So they were really sitting there quietly, but there was an explosion. The roof came off of that plant, 
debris fell in with with these fuel rods. The plant was being kept together by the equip- high tech equivalent of uh, duct tape, as I as I call it, and in a region where there are common earthquakes. Mm-hmm. So the question was really, could these rods be extracted from Unit 4 before they set off their own little chain reaction? There were a few thousand of them in that one unit, but there were, I believe, I'm trying to remember the number right now, it was well over 10,000 rods strewed around Fukushima, and it was not inconceivable that a chain reaction could have been set off that would include all of them. Mm -hmm. And if that were to happen, we could have actually damaged all plant, all environmental life on the planet. It It was that disastrous a possibility. But fascinatingly, while we had a BP oil spill in the Gulf and we used to watch oil come out of that little pipe, you Mm -hmm. know, day in and day out, there was almost no news talking about the decommissioning or the extraction of these fuel rods from Unit 4, and it took roughly two years. In fact, there are still fuel rods there, but they seem to be relatively safe, the ones that have not been extracted yet. Yeah, the 180 dumb ones. Um, <laughs> all right, so yeah, so this incredibly dangerous game of pickup sticks is being played, and you're, that was the, you, you stole the point that I was about to make, which is that ordinary, I mean, you know, when you think of sort of things where, you know, the split screen or the multi-squared screen on, on TV news is keeping you abreast of something, you know, but it's it's OJ in the white van or is the, how many days in the hostages have been held in Iran or what's going on there in the Gulf or something like that. You'd think that there would be like a little square on the right side of your screen telling you how many fuel rods were still left there. But for some reason or other, it's I mean, maybe we don't like to be worried by something like that. Or I mean, I mean, we're going to get to the trade offs of nuclear energy. But the first thing that we have to say is people somehow or other don't even know what the trade-off is. Well, it may also have been because that was a really serious danger. Mm-hmm. You know, So we are more likely to publicize the leak in the Gulf, which is doing a lot of environmental damage and is going to take the livelihood away from people down there. But most of us didn't expect to be affected in any dramatic way, perhaps economically, but not in any any dramatic way. So this was fascinating that this particular incident got so little cover. Mm. One idea has been it got little coverage because there were many plants with exactly the same design strewed all over the United States. And perhaps mm. that was, you know, trying to protect people. But I don't think anybody can control the media in that way. I think they somewhere they decided it wasn't a story. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, everything that you just said would be a compelling argument for it being a story. Exactly. There's one of them near you. That's usually a reason for it being. So who knows? Who knows? Well, well, we can drop into agnosticism about that for a second. But then let's look at it. So we've had Chernobyl. We've had Fukushima. We, it, we It's difficult at times to measure or agree on the numbers uh, of, I mean, Fukushima obviously is really still an unfolding story. We don't really know what kind of damage happened there, what the health consequences long term for people anywhere near there might be. With Chernobyl, as you point in the book, you know, there's even still some argument about numbers, how many how many leukemias that wouldn't have happened are, are happening. But it's significant. Uh, you know, a lot of people died who would not have otherwise died. But even some routine average nuclear power plant children, you know, who live within, what is it, five kilometers have twice the rate of, uh, of leukemia. I mean, there's reasons even in non-catastrophic situations to have some questions about an atomic power plant. So, if you just listen to that side of it, 
Chernobyl, Fukushima, childhood leukemia, you'd say, okay, no more nuclear power, no nukes, you know, bring back uh, the concert uh, with John Hall and and Bonnie Raitt and uh, Bruce Springsteen. No nukes, no nukes, no nukes. Except except that, yeah. Except that nuclear power is actually one of the not only acceptable but for many people attractive trade-offs when you consider global climate change. Mm -hmm. Because nukes don't create a lot of carbon being spewed into the atmosphere, unlike nearly every other major form of energy production that we can talk about. And even with all the nuclear meltdowns we have had, we have not had the deaths that we see yearly from coal. Yeah. And and we haven't shown much interest really in regulating or limiting our use of power. We're not developing the alternative stuff fast enough. Um, and the demand for power is going to triple over the next few decades due to the rising billions. Mm-hmm. Everyone in China would love to have a BMW. Mm-hmm. So, so when you look at it that way, it, it turns out to be a risk we're willing, almost eager to live with. It seems. It, yeah. se- it seems it's a risk we're willing to live with. But who knows, you know, what kind of disaster would have to occur before global climate change rose to the level that people were ready to make sacrifices or whether that kind of situation even exists, whether, we're, whether we might even be willing to accept having to move – tens if not hundreds of millions of people off off of coastal regions to keep our right to have to use as much fossil fuel as we can. We'll come back. We're talking to Wendell Wallach right now, uh, and we'll come back to climate change and a couple of different other manifestations as we look at the future uh, and we look at some of the ways that technologies may be moving faster than our common sense or our uncommon sense. Either the book is a dangerous master, how to keep technology from slipping beyond our control. We'd love to hear from you. You probably have questions about the future. And we will be talking about lethal autonomous robots. We'll be talking about all this stuff. 860 By the way, they don't exist in 2055. They're like, you know, uh, they're today. 860-275-7266 or almost today. 860-275-7266. Do call in or tweet us at WNPR. Colin on the Twitters. We'll take a break. We'll come back. I've seen the future and And we're back, and we're talking to Wendell Wallach about the future uh, and about the pace of change. Let, let's take a moment uh, to talk specifically about that as we go along. Our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. So you, on, on this question of pace, you could have interviewed me for your book because uh, so I, I've got a good story about domestic drones, which is I wish I, could, I, wish I knew the year off the top of my head, but we, but. Uh, maybe like 2011, 2012, we decided we were going to do a show about domestic drones. And so I started calling, and we discovered that there were some little pockets around the country where people were looking at at them. The ACLU in Texas, for some reason or other, was very concerned about privacy issues involving domestic drones. But like when I called state agencies around here, or really almost anybody in Connecticut in any capacity, people... They were almost laughing at me. People were no, no, Colin, we don't really have any regulations about these domestic drones. <laughs> uh, that's a good one, though. That's good. Hey, Charlie, uh, this guy from public radio is on the phone asking about domestic drones. Well, I mean, it took no time to go from this esoteric joke to this reality, right? And this is something that you document a lot. The, the, that, the gap between sort of those two things is unusually small now. 
it's not only unusually small, but that's a good example of where you could see it coming four years ago. I could see it coming. But by the time it came, the way in which the policy establishment related to it was fragmented and totally inadequate. And so, um, I mean, using uh, drones as a a case in point, um, how does it get played out instead? It gets played out what? Lawsuits and and quickie legislation? And I mean, how does society begin to cope with something once it's sort of at their doorstep and they kind of have blown it off so far? Well, there are two things. One is how they are coping with it, and the other is how they should cope with it. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit of what I try to get to later on in the book is how we can manage these anticipatory issues a little bit better. But the way it got coped with is the FAA was given – was told that it had to set rules for introducing drones into public airspace. And they were immediately charged by the ACLU with whether or not they were going to address privacy issues. Mm. And they used that as grounds to back off from doing anything at all. But the legislators came back and said, that's not your problem. Just go create a bunch of rules. Mm -hmm. Well, they did. They announced those rules a few months ago. And immediately, Amazon came down on top of them because the rules said that any drone being flown has to be within the sight of the operator. Mm-hmm. And that was going to kill Amazon's delivery system. So they battled it out with Amazon and they gave Amazon grounds to be able to continue their experimentations with their delivery system and then sort of said, well, we're going to have to revise those rules down the pike. And then immediately they also got sued by a consortium who was concerned with the privacy concerns. And again, they said, in effect, and they're correct, that that's not their purview. That's that's not their responsibility. But then the question is, well, whose responsibility is it? Is it the state's? So most of you will remember that over the last few months, we've had these incidences of drones landing on the White House lawn mm. or, or, or landing on the Capitol or, or out, you know, just beyond the Capitol steps themselves. And that alerted public officials all over the country, about tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars, millions of dollars they're going to have to spend on privacy and surveillance concerns something that nobody was taking into account when we were trying to make decisions about okaying drones to, in effect, allow those researchers or police or whoever wanted to use them in domestic space. Nobody was really thinking about all the expenses that would be unpaid-for mandates on governments all around the country. You know, as long as we're talking drones, there's a lot, a lot of different ways we can talk about drones. So we're talking, we've just been talking about sort of domestic drones and the Amazon drones that are going to deliver your copy of A Dangerous Master, uh, uh, Wendell's book. Um, but, I mean, there's all kinds of drones, obviously. And one of the kind of cases in point you use um, to talk uh, about some of the questions that your book raises uh, is this uh, global hockey UAV. Now, this is a different kind of drone. Uh, this is a drone uh, that it's a much bigger uh, flying drone. This is the one that um, was about to land, or was sort of landing, and then because of something that some subroutine inside or governing anyway, this uh, flying vehicle um, told it it accelerated and like veered off and on the runway and into the desert and stuff. And right. So it's not supposed to do that. Yeah, it was taxiing on the runway, veered off, its nose collapsed, caused about a million and a half in damage. So what did we learn there? Well, that's a very interesting story because I think we learned that even coordination between humans and smart systems is very complicated. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that there were software flaws in that system, but you could also argue that there was human error. 
And, of course, as soon as you can point to human error in any way, shape, or form, which is the first thing we do every time there's a technology accident, somebody says, well, let's increase the autonomy of the system. Mm. The problem is the more and more you increase the autonomy, the more and more the human operators need to be able to second-guess what that system is doing. So it actually heightens their responsibility and some cases may actually heighten the likelihood of an accident, even though it might eliminate it in the area that it happened in last week or last month or last year. Although I think the counter-argument might be, and I mean, I haven't studied this incident as carefully as you have, obviously, but reading the account of it, it struck me that one of the other thing that was happening, it seemed anyway, that was that as things started to go awry, the machine was moving faster than the reactions of the humans. So that's the argument for making it more complex and more self-regulating, that this thing already operates at a speed and, and, and changes uh, its behavior at a speed faster than human calculation and reaction, so that making it more amenable to humans or making it putting it more in touch with humans isn't necessarily going to solve the problem if the humans aren't up to the job. Exactly, and that's why we're turning more and more to these kinds of systems because they can respond quick, more quickly than humans. And that was one of the things that was blamed on the humans. They misguessed what the machine was trying to do, and therefore they gave the wrong orders. Um, let me just uh, grab a call from Rick. I think we're going to go back to automated cars, but it actually all kind of fits together right here anyway. Here's Rick in Bristol. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, quick couple comments I'll take off the air. Um, in terms of, I think, selling the, the idea of automated sell cars to the general public, I think what would that really have to be part of the conversation is the security from a hackability standpoint. I think a lot of people would be cautious just in terms of knowing that their car could not be hacked by um, really a number of people, uh, and also in terms of how it would, possibility of it opening up to um, policing. You know, will the police even have, you know, the right and ability to grab a hold of your car and pull you over? Um, and then I think just the third comment quickly is that I, what excites me about the possibility of automated cars and automated cars uh, exclusive highways is that it basically allows your car to be part of a mass public transit system. And I think if you're able to bring those speeds on those highways up to, you know, maybe even 150 um, miles per hour, then there's a real benefit of streamlining our transportation system. And, and that is part of what excites me. All right. You've given us a lot to chew on. Before you tackle any of this, though, Wendell, I think one of the really pressing questions that you bring up in the book is responsibility and liability. I mean, he's bringing up hacking and stuff like that. One of the questions about any of these systems as they're developed that you ask is who's going to assume responsibility and liability for how all the scenarios play out? And that's one of the reasons why probably driverless cars are coming a lot more slowly than, um, than you would anticipate. If you've been watching these tests with Google Cars, you're probably surprised you can't buy one at your local dealer today. Mm -hmm. um, and I predicted many years ago that it would be a lot longer than um, most people expect, but perhaps we'll start to see some with pretty sophisticated features by 2020 at the earliest. And even those won't be fully autonomous cars. You know, to the point of hackability, this goes back also to the question of bad actors, too. You can right. de design a good system, but can you save it from bad actors? You probably can't. And I think that's um, that's probably a conversation we have to have as a society that we aren't having, <laughs> that you can't protect everything from bad actors. Bad actors are fewer and farther 
between sometimes than we like to acknowledge. The people who are going to hack your cars are not, um, you know, are not, at least so far, they aren't that common, and hopefully the, the manufacturers can keep ahead of the game and make the cars harder and harder to hack. But the reality is we probably can't protect ourselves from everything, and that may be one of the problems we've created with all these new technologies, is we expect everything to be risk-free, and that trade-off doesn't really exist. Um, there's so many places to go here. But, um, well, Betsy's just fired a question. So who's driving the push for more, more technology? In other words, where, where does the impetus to make things more complex, uh, more technological come from? Well, the impetus comes from all kinds of places, but perhaps one of the biggest impetus is that you can maximize profits that way. Mm. If you turn over human jobs to robots, they work 24-7 without benefits, you maximize your profits. If you have, um, if you have technologies that are less likely to have accidents, then you lower your costs. So on and on, these things are largely being adapted because they do provide benefits and real efficiencies. And uh, there's no question about that. It's just what is the price for those benefits and efficiencies? And over the long term, are we really interested in those prices if we looked at what the ramifications of them would be? You know, um, when you put it that way, what I was thinking about this morning reading the book is – something much more familiar to everybody. Um, but it, it's, it works exactly the way you just described it. And that is a phone tree or whatever you want to call it, the kind of automated answering systems we deal with all the time. So, so what's your goal when you're dealing with it? You're calling your credit card company. You're calling your health care, whatever they are. You, what's your goal? Your goal is I got to get to a human being. I got to go. And this is you're essentially dealing with a robot, right? This, this is a, a, a voice version of a, ro- a robotized system. And sometimes it's asking you to say stuff because it has voice recognition recognition capability or press buttons. But all you want to do is get to a, pr- a person. The company, of course, wants to extend that process through triage, right? And, 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 and narrow down what it is your question is. Because if they can do that, they have to employ fewer humans. They can also, of course, locate them in other countries. But that's another story. But they can, And that they're, they, what they'd really love, I assume, is to have almost no humans, to have the ultimate end of your dealing with their phone tree, whether it's Comcast or, or, or Blue Cross or, you know, or Capital One, to have the, um, a robot voice uh, and essentially a computer make the final decision. You know, your goal is sooner or later I'm going to get to talk to a person about this. But their goal is, well, no, ideally no, not ever. Ideally, because <laughs> that would be a lot cheaper for them if you didn't have to talk with the person. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that these systems really work for them because some of us who started out, you know, calm, ready to accept the five minutes it was going to take to get to a person. When we don't get to a person, we're infuriated. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, th- you have to assess a cost for infuriation. You know, is there one? Um, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, there isn't a cost for infuriation if everybody is doing this. Yeah. But this is actually, um, I mean, it's it's a much later topic for us to get at, but um, perhaps we should be moving back toward a high-touch society as mm-hmm. opposed to this kind of low-touch where we distance people from each other. Um, it is one way of creating jobs in an environment where robots may be taking more and more of our jobs. Mm-hmm. That's I. I'm going to take a break, but um, still remember that thought because as we come back, I want to talk about robots, particularly robots in sort of medicine and care of the elderly. Uh, I think this is a really interesting place to go in terms of high touch versus low touch. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. Right. 
I'm sorry to bother you, but will the wait be much longer? Try to be patient. There are three robots from the future ahead of you who are also trying to kill Wendell. Have another butterscotch. They're really good. They interfere with my space-time location sensor. Everybody's a hypochondriac. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Jules Lefevre, Deborah Timms, and Katie McAuliffe. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Haley Joel Osmond. For show pages, articles, and videos of robots assembling robots to work on the Faith Middleton Show, visit our website, wnpr.org, slash Colin. Tomorrow, the nose. And now, back to Colin. All right, so uh, Wendell Wallach um, was talking uh, as we went into the last break about soft touch or low touch versus high touch. So um, I think this comes up in an interesting way in your book in terms of looking at robotic medical care, particularly robotic medical care of the elderly. So there's a lot of things that robots really can do to help people who are really getting on in years uh, and and whether they're living in some kind of managed care environment or, I mean, what people really want to do is live on their own independently as long as possible. At least a lot of people want to do that. So what do you need? Well, you need to make sure they don't leave the stove on. A robot can probably help you with that. You want to make sure they don't lie on the ground for three days because nobody knows they're lying on the ground for three days. Robot can do that pretty well. Robot could probably do some other stuff too. Remind them to eat. Uh, remind them to take their meds and stuff like that. So, I mean, when you look at it that way, you know, it, it's it's as you say, robotic care might be better than no care at all, which is what a lot of people get. Exactly. You know, and I think uh, you know this is one of the good examples of where we do want the benefits. And uh, the problem is, will we look at the benefits as an excuse to not give the the human care, the human touch that uh, the elderly and homebound need? Yeah, and there's there are going to be some break points too, as you say. What happens when the elderly elderly person says, "No, I won't take my medicine." Exactly, and then you try and think through what the ramifications of that would be. You don't want you don't want the robot interfering with their autonomy to make their own choices. On the other hand, what does their autonomy mean if they've turned down their medicines for a day or two? It's possible that they aren't really all that mentally together themselves when they're making these decisions. And in a more institutional setting, I mean, one thing that a robot could do that would probably help would be get people out of bed, right? Getting getting an elderly person out of bed, getting that person upright is really helpful. But one of the points you make that I thought was really interesting is – um, a nurse watching that process and, and being involved in that process can see a lot of things, a lot of very human things, right? Exactly. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a nice thing that, um, in effect, that the robot could save the nurses from getting exhausted mm-hmm. uh, by helping lift patients out of bed so their linens could be changed or whatever needed to take place. But if you don't have the nurse there at all, the nurse isn't going to be able to observe the condition of the patient the way she or he might have if there were no robot. 
All right. So let's spend a little time talking about models of governance um, and uh, about how how we make sure that everybody isn't acting like Dr. Evil. I mean, Dr. Evil is probably still going to be Dr. Evil, but uh, how everybody isn't uh, acting like Dr. Evil. So um, let's go. Let's start with actually something that you actually did attempt to get involved in. And it kind of takes us back to an earlier part of our conversation, which is that um, you uh, um, correctly concluded that most people, although I think we understand that that drone warfare is a thing and that there are going to be guided drones that are going to do things, they're going to do strikes on al-Qaeda or maybe on ISIS and stuff like that, and maybe even people are relatively comfortable with that. Some people are. Some people aren't that comfortable with extrajudicial um, executions, but that very few people are comfortable with the notion of an autonomous, lethal weapon of this kind, though a, a machine that would decide on its own to kill somebody. Um, so you sort of tried to start a, right, a, a movement kind of of scientists and other concerned people to just like just to ban that idea, right? Well, I didn't. I wasn't the only person involved. There was a pretty broad array of people, and now there actually is a ban killer robot or stop killer robot movement that is meeting with the United Nations and trying to see whether they could put in place an arms control agreement. But I think it's pretty clear that even though the Terminator is totally science fiction at this stage of the game, it does seem it does seem to speak to a pretty broad intuition that we don't really want to be going down the road where machines make life and death decisions about humans. Yeah, I mean, you talk about just war doctrine, how there are, you know, there are things, although we don't necessarily abide by these intuitive policies or thoughts, but there are things that we agree are sort of bad in themselves, biological warfare, rape. I mean, these things shouldn't really be part of anybody's war strategy. That doesn't mean that they aren't. They are. But but you'd think that maybe an an autonomous killing machine, a machine with no prompting from a human, but based on its programming that makes a decision about who to kill and when and where, that that could go into that category. Well, I believe it should go into that category for a a broad array of reasons, but that doesn't alter the fact that Machines that can do that are seen as perhaps saving some of the lives of our own soldiers. So they're, they're being the attempt to restrict them is also being fought quite rigorous, mm. rigorously. But all of that suggests that there are um, supra-governmental entities that can have that conversation. And to some extent, we do have that. We do have that for the laws of armed conflict. They have evolved over 2,000 years and been codified in the Helsinki agreements but, um, you know, that doesn't mean everybody follows them. We've seen the use of chemical warfare, even though nearly all countries have signed on and said that chemical warfare is not an acceptable form of warfare. So we do have these different areas where we are looking at international agreements. So, for example, global um, ge- geoengineering, which many of your um, listeners may not know what it is, but it's basically using technological means to mitigate the effects of global climate change. Yet some of the forms of geoengineering could at least conceivably cause more damage than the problem they're meant to solve. So we actually have the UN trying to meet and put in place some agreements on when geoengineering experiments can and cannot take place. If they don't put those agreements in place, we're going to have all kinds of weird situations where one government will enact a policy that um, could destroy the climate in another country 
but they don't care because they need more monsoon rains. Right. And so this is um, this is, is stuff like atmospheric seeding where some kind of reflective material could be injected into a very high part of the atmosphere with the idea uh, of, of mitigating the warming of the planet. Right. But the real difficulty become these issues where we dip different values are different what is and isn't important. Mm -hmm. So in America, we've more or less decided that whatever risk GMOs have, we don't believe they really... First of all, we don't believe most of them exist, Mm. but um, we're willing to accept those risks, whereby in Europe, GMOs are are not appreciated at all. Although I talk to people all the time here. I mean, what I think there is about GMOs, and I promise you I'm going to leave a little time more for uh, for this government's governance question, but this is an interesting area, is there's a huge divide in America between scientists and people. Scientists basically think GMOs are fine, particularly gene, the, the you know genetically modified food is not dangerous. But, you know, I can walk out this door and walk around here and find four people, you know, who, sure. who, who disagree, right? Yes, but in this case, science policy and government policy seem to be pretty well aligned, partially because that serves a lot of different economic interests. Yeah, and also, if there's going to be global warming, if there's going to be climate change, we're probably going to have to actually genetically modify our crops so that they'll function in these new environments that previously didn't exist. If not genetically modify ourselves, which is uh, which is what one of my colleagues suggests. Right. Well, that that could be ha- it. All could be happening. None of it's uh, none of it's off. So. Um, so we have all these changes, and some of them are 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 good, but have complicated trade offs, and some of them you know, we don't even understand that well. So, and the question becomes: Are there mechanisms for looking at this? Government's very slow. I mean, like you know, try to get somebody on the phone in 2011 to talk about drones. Never mind actually putting in place a policy about drones, and you can sort of sort of see how slow it is. So one of the things that I found very intriguing that you talked about is how, um, in some cases, industry has partnered with environmental groups. I think it's DuPont and EDF around nanotechnology and said, thinking, right. you know what? If the government's going to develop the protocols and we want to do this stuff, but we really, really don't want to kill everybody or have some horrible thing wash up on our own feet, let's find somebody who can help us develop a protocol that doesn't exist. And this is, this is a way forward that we could have private governmental consortiums that could put in place a lot of different kinds of structures, hopefully ones that aren't as bureaucratic as the kind of hard law that we have right now. And oftentimes the law is just so out of date, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years beyond when it was originally enacted. So um, I and a colleague of mine, Gary Marshan, have proposed what we call governance coordinating committees, a way of bringing a lot of these soft law initiatives um, industry standards, insurance policies, laboratory procedures, together with hard governance strategies, laws and regulations for those few areas where you really need to cover the gaps or you really need to address things that you couldn't guarantee anyone would act appropriately without severe punishments. So uh, uh, now that sort of, I don't know, it sounds a little bit like an alphabet soup, be like another layer of bureaucracy. People are already disenchanted with bureaucracy. How, how would that differ from what we have now? And why, how would it be more mobile, more opportunistic, swifter and niftier than we currently are? Well, our idea is that this really exists to coordinate what already exists. Mm. And uh, therefore, it wouldn't try and usurp the role of regulators or government entities, nor would it try and usurp the rules of NGOs and others who are proposing various guidelines and procedures. But right now, we truly have a kind of jury-rigged system where 
you know, you might have hundreds of dis- different proposals on how you would manage nanotech. They overlap. They uh, Nobody's really thinking through what's needed and what isn't needed in some concerted way. So this is more about bringing the parties together and seeing if you could come up with a coordinated strategy as opposed to a haphazard strategy. It seems like some of that can happen at that level. And then other stuff just kind of, I think, happens at the level of practice and professional organizations. I mean, I... One of the things I loved in your book is that Watson, uh, the uh, computer that played Jeopardy, um, uh, you know, did, did make this one kind of glaring error, you know, which was that it was asked about an airport that was named after a World War II hero or something like that. It said Toronto, a U.S. airport in a U.S. city, or I don't know, whatever it was. It said Toronto. Toronto was like completely the wrong answer. And then the next thing that that I, that, that IBM was having Watson do was coordinate with medical researchers and medical care people on lung cancer research. And you're thinking, really, this computer? that doesn't know Toronto is not in the United States is going to look at my medical care right now. On the other hand, the well, truth... I, I yeah. would find that satisfactory just as long as the human stays in control of the process. Right. So it's one thing if the human is getting fed information, we're moving in the directions of having partnerships between you know, wise humans and input from computers, it's a entirely different matter if the humans are afraid to go against the computers because there's an audit trail there and they're going to be sued if they if they make a decision that the computer didn't recommend. Also, computers algorithmically and with big data are going to be able to make calculations that humans never could, you know? So that, it, that uh, it's, I, to me, it's not far-fetched at all. Once we go down the road of physician-assisted suicide and end-of-life choices and stuff like that, that a computer can look at you, look at all of your variables, and say to your doctor, this is how it's going to play out, you know? This is how it's going to play out. This is how much... Um, intervention is really warranted. Th- this is exactly when you need to go palliative. And, and then it would be very hard to argue with that. Well, we actually already have that. We already have computers that have millions of case studies that are looking at end-of-life decisions, and they're able to recommend to the doctors based on what had happened in whatever, 1,500 cases of individuals with exactly this condition. This is what worked, and this is what didn't work. This is where you spent a lot of money that was unnecessary, and this is where there was an effective treatment. All right. We have to stop right now. Obviously, this conversation could go on for hours because it's really interesting. Wendell Wallach uh, is the author most recently of A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from Slipping Beyond Our Control, Assuming It Already Hasn't. I added that last part. Thanks very much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow with The Nose. Excuse me, will you point me to the lethal autonomous robot sent from the future to kill Wendell Wallach before he warns mankind of the dangers I represents bathroom? I didn't realize you had the mechanisms to need our facilities, but okay, here's the key, but make sure you return it to me. It's the only key we have to the bathroom. Oh, I'll be back. Ugh, they all say that. <laughs>